Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Transformed by Pastor Sean Wood. It is, Lord, that we would hear you this morning. You have said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let us have ears this morning, Jesus. Let us hear you. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place, and I ask that you would move freely amongst us in your wonderful name. Amen. If you have your Bibles and like to meet me in uh, Romans chapter 12, we'll finish off the second part of what we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, for those that weren't here a couple of weeks ago, the first part is verse 1 of chapter 12. And, and Paul starts with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And I appreciate that first line because what Paul is doing now is after he has exposed the wonderful message of the gospel, Paul is now going to, uh, in two verses, sum up the Christian response. In two verses, he will sum up uh, the, uh, what the Christian life should look like in response to this gospel message. And he starts off with, I beseech you, I urge you, I entreat you, is what that word means. He's, he's begging those that he's writing to. He's begging them as brothers, not escalating or elevating himself above anybody else, but he says as brothers, I beseech, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And he immediately highlights the motivations. The, uh, the interesting thing is, when you think of religion in the first century, when you think of the time that Jesus was here, religion was uh, all about power. Uh, it was about wearing the finest clothes. It was about occupying the finest places. So the question becomes when Jesus comes and says, you will suffer for my name and, and many people will hate you and revile you because of me. Everybody's going, why on earth would we want to do that? Paul says, because of God's great mercy. Because, of, because in 11 chapters of Romans, the motivation is the enormous mercy of God. How merciful and how loving he is. Uh, Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And a sacrifice in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, hasn't changed. A sacrifice is one that we willingly offer and surrender to God that he may consume the sacrifice. And my prayer is this, God consume me. I, uh, I love uh, the words of C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon uh, was the Prince of Preachers, but also ran a school for pastors in which F.W. Borum graduated from. Uh, Borum was listed as one of the top 10 preachers. And uh, one of those pastors, as he was graduating, grabbed hold of Charles Spurgeon and said, do you have any, any advice before I enter the pastor? And he said, I'll tell you something, son. He says, set yourself on fire, he says, and the world will come and watch you burn. And my prayer is that God would absolutely consume us and set us all on fire, that we would be a living sacrifice. But we tend to jump on and off the altar, if we're honest, don't we? That's the, that's the problem with living sacrifices. It's, when the heat gets turned up, it's out of the kitchen. Holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship, or in the Greek it's actually is your reasonable response. It's your reasonable, it's your logical act of worship and response to what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 2, Paul's going to take it a little bit further and he's going to show us what that looks like. 
And today uh, I want to speak about what it means to be transformed. And I think sometimes we get this round the wrong way. Sometimes we could be falling into the trap of what I like to call Christmas tree Christianity. What I mean by that is when I was in the forestry, we, uh, all the guys would uh, come around Christmas time, we would pick at random a, a, a pine coop with the trees at the right height, and final day before Christmas, we'd pull over and take six to ten trees home for Christmas. But there was something uh, about those trees, it didn't matter what these guys did with those Christmas trees, when they took them home, they would eventually die. The leaves would fall off. There was no life inside of those trees. It doesn't matter how much tinsel you throw on the Christmas tree. It doesn't matter how many stars you put on. It doesn't matter how much you want to decorate the outside of that Christmas tree. At the end of the day, it's dead on the inside. And often we get it around the wrong way. We think Christianity is throwing a heap of decorations on the outside of our life. And we get really, really good at putting on our Sunday spiritual makeup, don't we? Kind of, we walk in to church on a Sunday and everything's wonderful. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes when we get home, we're enormously thirsty and empty on the inside. The gospel didn't come to throw decorations on the outside of your life. Jesus did not come to renovate your life. Jesus came to transform you. That's the message of the gospel. And today, by the time we finished, I hope and I pray that we will grab hold of a message today. The gospel message that Paul wanted everybody to grab hold of. Transform Paul's life. Paul was a deeply religious Pharisee. When he, he speaks of keeping the law, he says, I was perfect. But here's a man that later on in the book of Galatians, he says, I opposed Peter to his face. What was Peter doing? Peter was acting hypocritically. He would act one way around the Gentiles, but when the Jews came, he would treat them differently. And Paul says, I opposed Paul to his face. And he doesn't say I opposed him to his face and called him a hypocrite. He doesn't say I went back through the Old Testament and pulled out all the verses that speak about racial indifference. No, he didn't do any of that. And he could have. He said, you know what? I opposed Peter to his face and to let him know that his conduct was outside the line of the gospel. It absolutely consumed Paul's life. So Paul goes on after verse 1, and he's now going to show us what it looks like to live up to being a living sacrifice. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. There was a psychological experiment that went a little bit like this. Uh, somebody wanted to kind of highlight what conformity looks like. So they took a glass jar and they filled it full of beans. And they took 12 people into the experiment and they individually brought them into the room and said, we would like you to guess the amount of beans in the jar. So each individual wrote down their guess. Yep, that's what I think. That's how many I think. Then after the individual guesses had come through, they got the group of 12 and they put them into the room together and said, now as a group, we would like you to come to a conclusion of how many beans you think are in the jar. So as a group, they deliberate, they talk, and the group comes to a conclusion of how many beans they think are in the jar. Then uh, to finish off the experiment, they bring all all of them back individually and they ask them how many beans are in the jar and if their answers had changed, every single one had change their answer. And every single one of them had changed their answer to be in line with the group. They had conformed. 
Conformity can be understood as uh, an influence, a, a in, letting ourselves be influenced, whether it's by behaviour or by belief, to the norm. I love the words of Karl Barth, and we're not going to leave these words, we're going to keep visiting them. Karl Barth was a reformed theologian from the early 1900s, and he said that Christian ethics are absolutely, uh, violently challenge the status quo. That Christian life and Christian ethics violently challenge the status quo. And I wonder whether our lives violently challenge the status quo. I wonder whether our churches violently challenge. It's the great unsettling. Why is it? Do you know you can wander into any country you like pretty much and you can talk about Buddhism, you can talk about Hinduism, all those sorts of things. You can walk in and probably even talk about Muhammad and all those things. But you walk into some countries and mention the name of Jesus and have a look at what they might do to you. Why is it that the gospel is so offensive? Because it upsets the status quo. Nothing's changed since Paul's time to our time. The the world would seek to press us into its mould. That's what conforming looks like. It looks like allowing yourself to be pressed into a mould. It's not necessarily a bad word. Paul, writing to the Philippians, would say, I seek to be conformed, same word, into the image of Christ. And what he's saying is, I I seek for Jesus to press me into the mould that is Christ. But if we're honest if we take check of our heart, I wonder how much the world has pressed the church. How much of us speak what the world allows us to speak? How much of what we think and what we is to accept the status quo? Paul would say, And I would say this morning, the gospel never, ever goes along with the norm or the status quo. Paul goes on and says that we should not be conformed, but conformed to what? Conformed to this world, but in the Greek, this world means this age. It's it's more speaking about the time or the current culture. And if you you have a look at the current culture we have today, just around us, uh, we have a very secular and relativistic kind of a culture around us today. More about that in a moment, but there's a story of two fish, which means it's probably a story I made up. But there's a story of two fish that are swimming along one day, and the first fish turns to the second fish and says, you know what, let us swim really, really fast and jump right out of the water, and while we're in midair, let's look upon the shoreline for a brief moment before we splash back into the water. And the second fish says, what an enormously good idea, let's do that. And as they begin to speed up, the second fish goes, whoa, 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 hang on a second. He goes, what? He goes, what is water? And many of us today are in danger of being like that second fish. I wonder how much danger there is today when we say, do not be conformed to this current secular world. How many of us would go, what is secularism? Secularism seeks to separate life from God and religion. Secularism is, today can be summed up in uh, pretty much what Western culture upholds. This life is the maximum. Everything that happens in this life 
is the most important. But it doesn't mean that people aren't spiritual. Uh, it's interesting, you could have conversations with people about spirituality until you blew it. It's actually really, really common today. People are all about spirituality. But it's interesting what it sounds like. When you start to talk to them about spirituality, you begin to discuss things like experiences. And everybody's all about the experience without the implication. I I, want to be able to experience something other than this world. I want to believe there's life after death. I want to believe in the spiritual realm and, and all of these things. But don't tell me there's a God because the minute you tell me there's a God, there's implications for my life. I want all of the fluff and the tickle. I want all of the experience. I, I, I want to be able to feel peace and meditate and, and have chant words and whatever else tickles your fancy. And I want all of that. But I don't want a God that tells me how I have to live my life. That sounds like secular society. Here's another thing it sounds like. The sad truth is, There's a lot of that in the church. Many today want the experience. Many today want to have the experience of God and the experience. But when it comes down to do we want somebody who's Lord of our life and tells us how to govern our lives? Do we want somebody that objectively imposes upon our lives about how we treat the person sitting next to us? When you walk in on Sunday and somebody's sitting in your seat... Get all Tasmanian on them. (laughs) And if you're wondering what that looks like in the physical, what does this look like? What do the practicalities of this look like? And that's what Paul moves into next, by the way. When he says things like, let love be genuine, abhor evil, uphold what is good. What does he mean by all those things? Well, we'll cover those when we get to them. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but. (laughs) I love the word but. Don't be Terry. Some, some buts are pretty horrendous, but the ones that we find in the Bible are usually pretty good. And a but is offered as a contrast. What Paul has said is, do not be conformed to this world, to this current secular relativistic society. Uh, relativism means what is good for you is good for you, but what is good for me is good for me. What is, what is true for you, everything is subjective, not objective. There's no objective morality with relativism. Uh, I love uh, God rest his soul, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias was speaking around the world and uh, somebody picked him up for the airport and said, uh, you know, Ravi, I really want to show you this building. And this building, by the way, sums up the world in which we live in outside of these walls today. Uh, he comes along, he says, this building was built deliberately by the architect in honour of relativism. He says in this building, he says there are pillars that don't hold anything up. He said there are staircases that don't go anywhere and doors that lead nowhere. Everything is random and chaotic. Ravi Zacharias beautifully said, I wonder if he did that with the foundations. We live in a world today where people are looking behind doors and there's nothing behind there, climbing staircases, getting to the top and realising there's nothing there when they get there. We're living in a world that we're trying to erect pillars to hold things up that do not exist. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not allow this world to tell you who you are to be. No, but, here it is, be transformed. 
Paul says, don't conform. No, no, no. Be transformed. This word transformed is a very, very powerful word. In the Greek, it's actually metamorpho. It's used only four times in the entire Bible in the New Testament. Twice it is in reference to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So transform or metamorpho means to be transformed or transfigured. A little bit more about transfiguration later, but transfiguration basically means uh, when we are describing Jesus on the top of Mount Transfiguration, uh, it says that he, his whole hair and body shone. <laughs> and what happens was the glorious inner essence of Christ was permitted and allowed to shine through. A little bit like what God's trying to do with each one of us. That glorious deposit that he places inside. But further to that, that transformation speaks of metamorphic or where we get our word metamorphosis, which we know to be a biological process in which some animal is completely and utterly transformed. The best way to understand that is caterpillar and butterfly. If you're a fly fisherman, however, the best way to understand it is uh, with the mayfly. And uh, if you are a trout fisherman in Tasmania, you are a trout fisherman as well as an entomologist, which means you will study insects because you need to know all about the insects because that's exactly what the trout feed on. But the main insect they feed on is the mayfly. And it has a complete life cycle, which goes round and round, but it begins as a nymph. And the nymph looks like a really miniature cockroach that crawls around on the, on the bed of the surface, in the weeds, in the rocks, all those sorts of things. But when, and here's the really important part, but when the atmospheric conditions and the environment reach the right atmospheric conditions, something happens inside of that nymph. We don't know how. We don't know why. I love how God puts mysteries into nature that we can't explain. <laughs> Nobody knows how, nobody knows why, nobody knows what triggers it off. Every fly fisherman in Tasmania reckons they've got the formula down pat and none of them have. It's got to be 17 degrees, it's got to be overcast, it's got to be, you know, just 15 knots of wind, no more than that. That's all rubbish, by the way. I've seen duns rise. And what will happen is they fill with air and they rise to the surface and they peel off the outer layer of the nymph and this adult dun emerges with wings. And they look like little sailboats floating across the water. And that's like transformation inside of a church, I, I personally believe. If I can have a little bit of free license for a moment, I think our job here, Lord God, let us do what we can do to create an atmosphere and an environment that allows what's beautiful on the inside to burst forth on the outside in every person's life. That's called transformation. The beauty of that nymph is, and I still, don't, I still can't work this out. I know I'm pretty simple, but I can't work this out. That nymph has inside of it all of the DNA and potential of that adult dun. And by the way, the adult dun quickly transforms again into what we call the spinner, and it quickly mates, lays its eggs. All happens in a 24-hour period, sometimes even quicker. And you can walk along the banks of the lakes and shake the bushes and all these black spinners will fall out. It's, it's an amazing sight when there's a hatch on. And in Tasmania, everybody's hunting the hatch. Uh, uh, Reuben might be away, but you can walk the banks of the lakes. I remember me and Reuben walking along the banks there one time and uh, there's like guys lined up with their rods in their hands and I said, there's something wrong here. Is there, is there a reason you're not in the water? Oh, we're just waiting for the hatch. 
And I said, what do you mean? I said, wouldn't you fish and... No, 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 we just sit here and wait. And literally, you could pick up a dinner plate of water. If you could pick it up, you'd have sometimes 15 to 20 duns sitting there. That's how thick they are. It's amazing, but it's the right atmospheric conditions for transformations. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Complete change in who you are. You remember, for those that know the analogy of the transfiguration, it was a moment in time that changed three men's life. Uh, John, James and Peter. But Peter writes about it in his epistles. On the glorious mount, he's changed his life. Why? Because a man they'd walked with for three years, same hair as us, probably a bit more than me, Right? And if you're thinking blonde hair, blue eyes, that's not Middle Eastern anybody. But here's this man that all of a sudden was so glorious. Peter does something that we sometimes do as well. Peter says, this is so good. I want to, let us build some tents. Moses is there. Elijah's there. Let's build. Don't, don't we have those moments in God where we just want to be there forever and we want to build tents? the most glorious moments in our lives where we just, Lord, but it's always God depositing something that we have to take back down the mountain. Jesus was transfigured before all the, well, the three disciples and what was always there on the inside, but it was cloaked and veiled, his wonderful glory all of a sudden shone on the outside. Transformation is a process. For a caterpillar, it's a process. For the mayfly nymph, it's a process. And transformation for each and every single one of us is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Uh, Paul described it like this when he was talking to the Philippians. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. Work it out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. (laughs) And this has kind of conjured up some uh, reasonably interesting explanations as to what the renewing of the mind looks like. But let's, let's expose it for a moment if we can. What Paul is trying to describe here is the renewing of the mind is a restoration back to a right way of thinking. In Romans one twenty eight, he will say, for those that were here uh, almost 15 years ago when we started preaching the book of Romans, but for those that were here in chapter 1, verse 28, it says that those unbelievers it's speaking about those who are under the wrath of God, going about their own ways. It says that God gave them over to a worthless mind where they view the world. Each and every one of us uh, operate by what is called a world view. Atheists have a world view. It's the way they view the world and how they view the world governs how they conduct their lives. And uh, Atheists have a world view. There's a Judeo-Christian world view, which is what our world view would be. But C.S. Lewis, he, he had a way of just describing things very beautifully. And he says, you know what? I believe in Christianity as I do the sunrise, not because just because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything. What happened was there was a transformation and a renewal inside of C.S. Lewis where he said, you know, the world that, I've, the world that I have lived in and I have uh, gazed upon and all studied for all these years is enormously different now because I'm looking through a different lens. Transformation happens when we renew 
our minds. When we begin to look at this world through the lens that God, I wonder, just momentarily, I wonder if, I was challenged when I was thinking about this because uh, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife convinced me to watch a series on the Vikings, which is called Vikings, but it's actually a true story about a Viking family that uh, go on these raids in England. And don't worry, they're not wholly and devout kind of people or anything like that. I'm not saying live your life like a Viking, but they did challenge me because um, as weird as their belief system is and as hard as it is to nail down, by the way, as weird as it is and the many gods they had, what challenged me was how it consumed their life. Every part of their speech, every part of their thought patterns was orientated around what they believed. I mean, the English remarked of the Vikings, we can't believe these guys. The minute they're born, they're obsessed with death. It's just how they were going to die and it had to be the right way and it had to be with bravado and these guys did not have a long life expectancy. The women were just as brutal. So I learned. No men in Australia, they're not more brutal. But the challenge is, if we allowed what we think, if if we allowed what we confess to believe to control us and consume us in the same way that it did the Vikings or the same way that it did the early apostles, I, I wonder what the landscape of this world would look like. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The other references, the same word for mind is used. Paul speaks of the mind in various ways about the faculty of our reasoning and our understanding. What does he mean by mind? It's often used as an equivalent to the heart or the seat of our inner person. Be transformed by the renewing of what's inside of you. When you look at the world through the lens of the gospel, it changes how you view the world. When you look at the person sitting next to you through the lens of the gospel, it changes how you view the person sitting next to you and it changes how you treat them. When you see the world through the lens of the gospel, when you see your own spiritual condition through the lens of the gospel, it changes how you react to God. Something amazing happened inside of Paul called grace. When he put the lens of the gospel on and he had a look at, I mean, in, for, for those that followed us through Romans chapter 7, he says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And then he goes on and says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? <sighs> Jesus Christ. My Lord and Saviour, he got grace. And he understood that grace changes our I have tos to Lord, I want to. That's the motivation by the mercies of God. Lord, I want to. I want to please you. I want to do what's right. I did mention that the word transformed is used in three, uh, sorry, four places, transfigured and then two in the New Testament. The other one is 2 Corinthians 3.18. If you would like to turn there, you can, but... 
I'd like to just reference this because it teaches us also how it is that we can be transformed. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, what can I do? What does this look like in my life? I love what Paul does here with these verses. Paul is talking about being a minister of a new covenant. And he references uh, Moses as the minister of the old covenant and how he had to wear a veil because, as we will see, what they didn't have in the Old Testament was the liberty to approach God like we now have. There was this veil between him and the glory. Now, uh, just a brief note on the Corinthians. Uh, Terry uh, read from Corinthians this morning, 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written to a church that was off the charts. Okay, These guys had some weird and wacky ideas. And Paul writes a very terse letter to them in 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians is really positive because they got the message and they, did, they put it into practice. And speaking about being a minister of the new covenant, let's start, let's start in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17, and most of us will know this verse. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or there is liberty. And that may be able to be applied in different ways, but here's what it means. Here's the interpretation of what Paul is talking about. It means that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is a liberty, a freedom, an unbounded, unreserved, open door for us to approach God on our own. You don't need someone to approach God for you anymore. And in the first century, this was radical. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, I love this verse, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Human beings are imitative by nature. Human beings, uh, parents, if you're listening to me, children are deeply imitative. Children see, children do. Unfortunately. (laughs) But as humans, we are enormously imitative. What that means is where your focus is, where your attention is, or we're going to unpack this word behold in a moment, what it is that you behold is what you will be transformed, conformed to. A.W. Tozer says that faith can also, the word believe can also sound like this, look. You remember in uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus says, uh, gives the illusion of the bronze serpent and the snakes are biting everybody and the, bron- and the serpent's put up on this bronze pole. And what happened was everybody that was being bitten and all the poison, there's a bit of poison flowing through human society today, but all the poison that was flowing through them, if they looked, if they changed where they were looking, they would be saved. And Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And if mankind will look. Uh, Last week I wrote about divine dilemmas. It's interesting how God pushes us into situations. Like like the Israelites when they came out of Exodus. They came out of Exodus and they think everything's hunky-dory. Then they hit the shores of the Red Sea. 
and uh, then they turn around and behind them is the whole Egyptian army coming after them and it's the sea before them and, and they turn around to Moses and go, what, there wasn't enough room in Egypt to bury us that you've brought us out here to die on the banks? And that, what had happened was God led them into a divine dilemma for one reason. They would not look forward, not look around, not look, but look up. And when they crossed the Red Sea, there was no doubt in anybody's mind or heart God brought us through the waters. Recent documentaries have tried to pinpoint exactly where the east wind would have come from and if the, if the Israelites crossed here, then it would have only been knee-deep water. Doesn't actually remove the miracle because God drowned the whole Egyptian army in knee-deep water. One way or another, God did the miraculous. And there are instances in our lives, I believe, I know people even right now that are, uh, have been believers and have, and have walked away and others who are not believers. And I can tell you now, God's doing a number on their life. Sometimes people come to me and say, oh, my world's falling apart. And I say, find the person who's praying for you. Because if you can't stop them, it ain't going to stop. And what God will do is cause chaos here if he has to, or as Proverbs says, he will tear down your house if he has to, to get you to look up. And if before you slip into eternity, your whole world falls apart, but you look up and accept Christ, praise God. Praise God. Paul says in Ephesians that we should be renewed in the spirit of our mind, that the peace of God gather our hearts and minds, be united in the same mind, he says here that we are to behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed. That word being is present tense. It's not a one-off act that happens and then it's all hunky-dory. It's a lifelong, continuous process of being transformed. Similar to how our wives are trying to transform their husbands. It's a lifelong process, Sonia. <laughs> If you sit on the front row, brother, I I have warned you, but you know, (laughs) you kind of open yourself up. (laughs) Here's what beholding looks like. And we can get lost, I believe. And I want to encourage everybody, if you're sitting here today saying, how do I make a change in my life today? How do I walk out of this place today and make a change in my life? Let me show you what beholding looks like. Uh, Often I think uh, the greatest analogy is Mary and Martha. Too many of us are Martha. Too many of us are busy in the kitchen. Too many of us are worried about the plates. Too many of us are worried about the the, the looks and everything's got to be right. And for a moment... What beholding looks like is what Mary was doing. Martha's busy in the kitchen getting everything ready for the guests and everything's got to be right and and Jesus is like, Mary's found it. And what Mary was doing was sitting at the feet of Christ. She wasn't saying anything. She was just sitting there looking at Christ. And here's the number one thing you can do when you leave here today. Do whatever you have to do in your life to find that place at the feet of Christ. Get out of the kitchen, friends. We can, for those that, for the two or three that read the pastor's comments, we can lose the who in the how. We get caught up in the how, how, programs, ordinance, ceremony, we can get caught up in all of these things and we lose the majestic person behind it all. And Martha comes running in and says, Jesus, tell her to get up and give me a hand. And Jesus says, she has chosen the one thing, the one thing, and it's not going to be taken away from her. 
Praise God. We are all being transformed, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are all being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, Jesus and Paul never put in chapter and verse breaks. Man did that later on. If you read that straight through, it goes on and says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, the ministry of what? The ministry of proclaiming the new covenant and the gospel message. That's what Paul is talking about. As I bring this to a close this morning, ask the worship team if they could join us back on. We're going to finish with a song before we go home today. But as I, as I bring this to a close this morning, and before we move into the practicalities, I... I want to use an analogy, if I can, from a deeply theological movie. And it actually was reasonably theological for you movie buffs. For those that have watched The Matrix, how many people have seen The Matrix? Okay, if you haven't watched The Matrix, that's your homework today, is to, <laughs> is, is to go home and watch The Matrix. But for those that have watched The Matrix, uh, and we'll go with the first one, not the other 17. But for those that have watched The Matrix, you'll understand that it's all about a man called Neo who kind of finds out that, you know, life is a little bit fake. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing what's going on here. Anyway, there's a moment in the film that everybody will know. There's a moment in the film where another character, Morpheus, comes to Neo and holds out two hands. In one hand, he has a blue pill. In the other hand, he has a red pill. He says to Neo, he says, you can take the blue pill if you like. And the blue pill equals ignorance. If you take the blue pill, Neo, your life will go back to the way it was. If you take the blue pill, you'll continue the rest of your life in ignorance bliss to all this downloaded code and the actual truth of what's really going on. And everything will go back to the same and you don't have to worry about this anymore. He says, but if you take the red pill, which is a pill of knowledge, he says, the knowledge that the red pill gives you is unpleasant, but it's enormously life-changing. And Morpheus stands before Neo and says, you have the blue pill and you have the red pill. Today, I believe God's holding out his hand with a red pill. The message of Romans is a message about the red pill. Here is a truth It'll change the way you see the whole world. It'll change the way you see the whole universe. It'll change the way you see everybody around you. It'll change the way you see yourself and it'll change the way you view God. It's called the gospel. And God is saying, if you take this pill today, it'll be an unpleasant truth. The gospel's unpleasant sometimes. The reality of the truth of the person of Jesus Christ is it's, it's unpleasant sometimes. It's unpleasant having a knowledge of a God that sometimes everything goes wrong in our lives and sometimes he allows it. It's uncomfortable to take a pill which reveals the truth that Jesus didn't come to dress up your world, he came to deliver you out of it. To give us a hope that is anchored outside of this world which no circumstance and no person can take away. And yes, this truth is unpleasant. And yes, sometimes it can be painful. But it's enormously glorious and it will transform your life. If you're sitting here today and saying, I've never, 
I've never taken that pill at all. Don't leave here today. If you're sitting here and saying, I've been a believer for many years. And I was happy taking the blue pill, Pastor. Don't leave here today without taking the red pill. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. If you haven't, if you haven't read the book, The Pursuit of God, you have to, that's your other homework for the week, is, is read The Pursuit of God. But the call of The Pursuit of God is to, is to reduce down our lives. It's just to... Re, we get all mechanical about approaching God when all we have to do is come out of the kitchen and do what Mary does and sit at the feet of Christ and just behold him and he will transform you. Can we stand as we finish in prayer just before we sing, please? If you need prayer here this morning, we'd love to pray with you. If you need to do business with God before you go home, then we'd love to pray with you. But for a moment, can we just stand silent? Before we sing, can we just stand silent in his presence for a moment and just allow the Holy Spirit to place his finger on our hearts? Jesus came to transform you. Jesus came to transform the world through you. Father, we pray for transformation. Lord, we don't want to live in ignorance anymore. We don't want to live in a world of a house of cards that we erect for ourselves that blows down the minute there's a, someone leaves the window open. Lord God, I pray, transform our hearts. I pray that you would teach us to behold the person of Jesus. Conform us, Lord, not to this world, but conform us into the image of Christ. Press us into that mould. It hurts. It hurts sometimes when our pride is pressed when we're exposed to the reality of our hearts and the sinful condition, it's painful sometimes, Lord God, but conform us into the image of Christ, I pray. Grow us, Lord God, I pray. I pray that in this place there would be just the right atmosphere for transformation. Lord God, we turn our eyes off this world. We get our eyes off circumstances, off what the media wants us to believe and we fix our eyes upon the person of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord God, that you would transform us into that image. Let us see your glory, Jesus, if we just saw snippets of your glory. It would radically change us forever. Father, I pray for each one here that today would be the day that every one of us would look back on and say, I began to transform on that day. Lord, we ask this in your wonderful and glorious name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.